Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Reed Harpham. Reed is a product designer who has spent much of his career working in the healthcare and medical device space, but has also been deeply involved in consumer and industrial markets as well. Prior to his role, uh, his current role, he, he held titles from industrial designer to director of human-centered design and currently serves as a senior medical device specialist at Priority Design. Uh, Reed, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're, you're very welcome. So one of our former uh, podcast guests introduced us, and I've been going through your, your LinkedIn profile and looking at uh, the, the comp- Priority Designs, the company at which you work, and super excited to talk to you. I've got all kinds of questions that, that I just want to pick your brain about. Um, to start with, I'm going to ask, what, what made you decide to get into the product design space? What, what made you decide to become a product designer? It's actually, it's kind of a cool story. So when I was a kid, uh, I built models, model cars uh, all the time. And I can remember when I was a sophomore in high school, there was some, you know, some assignment that was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And and so I looked around for jobs that I could do that would let me build models. And it was, I'm going to age myself, but it was right when Star Wars came out, you know, the, I think it was Empire Strikes Back came out. And I was so enamored with the models and stuff that they use that I thought, oh, I want to build models for uh, for movie sets. My father, who is an architect, said, you know, you should you should look into industrial design because it's kind of a little bit of both. You can you can use some art, you can use some engineering and you can use some you know, you can do model building. It's all sort of encompasses that. And so I looked into it. Uh, Ohio State at the time happened to be, you know, a, a really great school uh, when I was uh, when I was able to go. And so, yeah, it just sort of I mean, I literally stumbled into it. Um, but as soon as I got into it, as soon as I did some research and got into the into the school and some of the preliminary classes, I thought this is, you know, this is amazing. <laughs> you get to, you get to see things, you know, come up with ideas and watch them go, you know, come to fruition. It was just, you know, it was mind blowing and I've loved it ever since. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about your experience with Star Wars. I want to hear about this. <laughs> I, I was born in 79 and I think it, maybe that's the year the first Star Wars came out. So I didn't have the experience of watching this and just being blown away because it was so drastically different and innovative uh, as far as, you know, special effects, visual effects. What was that like when you watched it? It, it, I, it was probably too young to, to pay attention to all of the stuff that was going on, but it was just everything about, just everything about it. The story, you know, the, at the time the visuals were, you know, there's a giant Wookiee, you know, there's a giant furry animal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you said that uh, you're, you're passionate about integrating end user insights into the product development process. Can you share maybe uh, a few examples of, of when and how you've been able to do this effectively? Early in my career, one of the things I, I worked at a large uh, R and D company and, and it was, um, was a lot of technology push so we were developing some pretty amazing new to the world technologies and i can remember watching those technologies in some cases fall short because the people who are intended to be using those technologies they weren't really designed for those people um so i can remember on a number of occasions um you know from surgical tools to uh things like clinical analyzers um being able to be the voice of the user in the process uh, and for example, you had a, a system that comes to mind is one that the technology allowed throughput of slides to be like triple the technology itself, triple what it could do today. But the way the system was designed, 
the users couldn't even put enough slides in. What the kind system. of slides are you referring to? Uh, these were pre-made microscope slides. Okay, so they're putting these slides under under a microscope and analyzing it, and then moving on to the next slide. Well, that's the way they used to do it. This system actually, you you took the, what was so groundbreaking about the system is it was an imaging system, and the the user would uh, pipette out a sample, put it in a uh, a little vial, and then put the vial in a rack into the system. So it was it was expediting. Um, the reading of these things and the system could do some ridiculous amount of, uh, of readings per minute or per hour. But while the technology was amazing, the actual Achilles heel of the system was that the user was unable to put enough or unable to make okay. enough samples, prep enough samples in time to fill the system. So, you know, to me, that was one of the biggest and earliest moments where I was like, you know, this is um, technology is great, but if you have to have a user involved in the process, then you need to give equal opportunity to the user to have inputs uh, to the system. And that's sort of the foundation of where I started uh, with this, you know, uh, passion about making sure users are involved and their voices are heard and, and uh, they're being thought about throughout the process. And how do you go about doing that? How do you uh, decide at the beginning of a project, okay, we're going to do, you know, X, Y, and Z to make sure that the user's voice is heard and we don't end up with a, a fantastic technology that no one can use? So at the time, it was just being allowed obnoxious about it. Uh, it was back before um, the FDA really came down on on human factors and incorporating human factors in the process like you do other you know, as a risk assessment, uh, risk mitigation. So prior to that, it was just like, uh, you know, getting inv- invited to the table and and being a champion for the users to to let the teams know that um, this technology is great, but if the users can't use it, then it's pretty much useless. And so, you know, the role is to, um, to allow the users to have input, but also um, let this technology live up to its expectation. So just from the very beginning, letting people have a voice and, and going and, and making the assumption, I don't know what a user needs and going out and talking to them, um, interviewing them, watching what they do, getting that knowledge and then communicating that knowledge back to the team or having you know, having those insights and inputs as part of the early development process, um, which is another you know benefit of being invited to the table early is, is you get to have impact before things are too set in stone, um, before people are already so far down the path of development that, that a a, what seems to be a minor change actually is a major change because you're so far down the path. I really like that example. Be loud and obnoxious. That, that's a great way to put it. And and that uh, every team needs a champion, right? A champion for this stuff. Otherwise, it's just not going to get done. I'm I'm curious when um, you or you know your teammates were the champions for these human factors. Uh, items. Did you ever get pushback from other members on the team? Member, maybe like the project manager or you know some some dense mechanical engineer who needs those guys, <laughs> where they were like, "Yeah, Reed, that's cool. I mean, I get it, but that's kind of you know touchy feely stuff. We don't really need to worry too much about that." All the time, all the time, all the time. Really, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of didn't think that was going to be the answer. Okay, well, so I mean, this this is this was a while ago. Um, you know. When I first started in this business, it was, you know, it was 95. Um, so at the time, yeah, there was a lot of pushback. Um, and, and you know, people, what I realized while working with engineers, and this was, an, this was a really important learning for me, was to know, the, know your audience. So, you know, at the time, um, you know, I was an obnoxious designer. And I was on a project and I was like, no, no, you know, th- this is what you guys need to do because the users need it. You know, the users want to feel empowered to use it. And, and they're like, 
what it, you know, <laughs> the information you're giving me is useless. Um, you know, the, the, set, the, the feeling that I got was they didn't appreciate the insights or they didn't think that research was, you know, that we were doing was important or valuable. What I learned after working with engineers for a while is that engineers mm. just wanted to know what their constraints were so they could solve these problems. And so as soon as I recognized that and I recognized that the engineering team was actually my user set and not the patients, once I realized the engineers were the users of my outputs, the story changed. And so rather than say to them, you know, hey, this product needs to empower the user, I was able to say, you know, this device needs to have a textured handle to allow the user to grab it with wet hands and not have it slip out. That gave them a framework and a target. And once once I changed my frame of mind and how I presented these things and, and the, the way I presented to the development teams the user needs, it completely changed the game with how we approached it. That's that's a huge insight right there. So the information, the research that you and your team was doing was super important and, and valuable, but the engineers didn't recognize that because it wasn't being presented in terms that they understood. It, it wasn't being presented in, in like an engineering requirement form. That's what you're saying, right? That is correct. And and what was so, what's so ironic about that, and I still see it happening sometimes, is that you get design teams, industrial design teams or research teams who are so adamant that they understand the users, but they don't understand their audience, which in essence are their users. So you get these notions of uh, unusable requirements. And so once you recognize that the people who have to use your outputs are engineers and they want requirements, then you just change you change the way you present it. And speaking as an engineer, I, I can see how, like if if a designer told me, okay, this device has to feel good to the user to hold. I'd be like, what is good? You know, I, I don't know what that is. And it's, it's going to be more trouble to try and figure out what good means than it is to just kind of sweep it under the rug and do, do my thing. But if I hear, okay, this, uh, the handle has to be a durometer between, you know, this and, and that short A. And it needs to have, you know, bumps of this size spaced at, at, at this spacing. Then I'm like, oh, I get that. Sure. I can do it. No problem. And that, that makes it really easy for me as, as an engineer to implement that. So that's, that's a huge insight. Uh, I mean, it comes down to communication, right? Like, like so many things. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just recognizing your audience and knowing how to communicate. And the other thing is not, you know, in the early days when, when I would get the feedback of, okay, thanks, but no thanks, or great, you know, this, this is not very helpful. I always thought it was that they didn't appreciate what we were doing. And, and what I realized, you know, was that they just, we weren't communicating on the same level and the same in the things that they needed to hear. So, you know, once I did that, their, their expectation and their desire to do these things was right there. They just needed the target. And, and, and my job was to give it to them. Wow. That's great. I love that. Okay, something else you've said is that you, you strive to help healthcare clients find balance between technology and humanity. And, and this might come down to kind of the same thing that we're just talking about, but I thought that was a really interesting statement and wondered, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, what do you mean specifically when you say humanity? Basically, it's people's ability to do what you want the technology to do for them. Um, you know, there's nothing more disappointing than, and I, we talked about this a little bit earlier, an amazing technology that that falls flat because the user or the the end the end user of that technology, the end recipient of that technology, either doesn't need it or know how to use it, uh, or wants to use it but it's too hard to use. So, um, you know, in my past, in working in environments where you're developing new to the world technology, um, understanding the end user and making sure that what we were providing to them was relevant was it was key. And also, you know, 
going the other direction, making sure that everything isn't equal. So the users, you know, I would argue that um, some types of pumps should not be easy to use because if it's easy to use that a child can use it, they might hurt themselves. So the whole notion of, oh, it's got to be easy to use. It's actually not true. You have to find this balance between what, who are the users, what's the technology enabled them to do, what do you want the technology to do, and find that balance between, you know, allowing users to 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 use the technology to its full potential, but also allowing the technology to not sort of bend the users to its will. I get it. I get it. That makes a lot of sense. Matching the technology to the user as opposed to just always needs to be easy to use. That that's an interesting point. I don't think I've I can't recall hearing it put quite that way, um, but like a pill bottle, right? Same thing. You don't want a pill bottle to be super easy to open or else little kids can open it and, and get themselves sick. Um, great insight. Yeah. Okay. You, uh, you, so you're working at Priority Designs right now, which is a really cool product design, product development company. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, uh, we're going to travel back in time just a little. And you spent about, I think it was about 16 years working at a company called Battelle, which is, I, I hadn't heard of them before. Um, but it, they seem like a pretty big company. And now I'm kind of embarrassed for, for not knowing who they were, but, it, uh, apparently the world's largest nonprofit independent R&D organization. Um, so I, I'd love to hear a little bit about Battelle and like who, who are their customers and, and what is unique about, about the experience of working, um, at a company, uh, that, that, uh, at a engineering or, or R&D company that is a nonprofit. Like what about that nonprofitness makes it interesting or unique? Yeah, well, there, it's Mattel is, you know, it's the biggest company that nobody knows about. Uh, it's a, so <laughs> okay, thanks for making me feel better. No, really, it's, it's uh, uh, everybody had that same reaction. What's unique about Mattel is it's, um, it's a, it's a non-charitable trust. So it was started in 1920 something, 28, I think, uh, by the will of, of Gordon Mattel and his mother. Um, and it was founded to advance technology and, and civilization through technology advancement and technology discovery. Um, so its fundamental purpose in life is to develop technologies and advance them for the greater good. And it worked in all kinds. I mean, it works in every area you can imagine. Um, you know, I was in the medical device group and was there for my entire career at Battelle. But they have they do a lot of government work. They do a lot of healthcare work. Um, how you might have heard of them lately is they recently developed a container system that that uh, cleans N95 masks and they got approval for it from the FDA in like really, you know, record time. Uh, I'm not sure the current status of it, but it was these, you know, these big containers that they basically drop shipped to these hospitals and were able to recycle and reuse and clean N95 masks. Um, so for me, what was amazing about that company and working for that company was um, a, the story, um, the people behind it, you know, what, what it meant to the community. Uh, part of being a nonprofit is you take some of the profits that you make and you give it to the communities that in which you serve, which is part of the trust, part of the will. Um, and so that was sort of the driving force. Uh, the other thing was the people who worked there and the technologies that we worked on were were so far ahead of their time. I mean, it, it's hard to remember or it's hard to realize when you're there in the moment. The things that you are looking at are five, 10 years away from being in the market sometimes. And you're just there because it's just normal. It's like, oh, this is, everybody gets to deal with this kind of technology. And then you step out of it. I, you know, I left, I left Patel like almost five years ago. You step out of it and you look back and you're like, oh man, <laughs> that stuff was amazing. Um, 
it's sort of the big R research uh, and and where you know, we're not, Mattel managed the national labs. And so there's a lot of fundamental technology thinking going on. And, and the group that I was in, the product development uh, and then, then medical device group, we helped translate the big R to the R&D. And, and we worked with commercial clients mostly to help them develop, either create technologies for new medical devices or develop their own medical devices. Um, but yeah, for me, it was as a, as a, a freshly minted graduate in design, uh, thinking I was the best thing ever and on top of the world and I knew all the answers to go into such a storied engineering company and get schooled pretty quickly on the fundamentals of engineering and physics and all the things that you really can't change. Um, it gave me an incredible appreciation for that technology field, R&D, and sort of the, the give and take you have to have, uh, but also gave me a chance to, to, as we talked about earlier, communicate to people the value of the human insight, the human input into this system. Was was Battelle is Battelle kind of like a university in that there's a lot of R and D going on, but maybe not much commercialization, or are they doing the commercialization as well? It's a little bit of both. So it it's it's it has elements of university where there's some fundamental research going on. It has elements of commercialization where they're they're sometimes developing their own internal technologies and either licensing them or developing products that have that embedded in it. And then they're doing a lot of commercial work. Um, so it really, you know, it exposed me personally to a lot of different uh, different areas. Uh, for the most part, it's probably, you know, they probably do some uh, more research and development than actual commercialization of their own uh, and of, of their own products. I mean, when I say development, it's product development for outside commercial partners. So I've heard of, of course, nonprofits that uh, are, are focused on, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, charities. Uh, but but R and D, I would never put R and D into that bucket of of a charity. I mean, this is like this is business. We're developing technologies that are going to be commercialized and uh, pushed out into all these different markets. What what was the culture like there at Battelle? Um, did you get a sense that like people weren't? I don't know. It sounds bad to say it this way, but as as driven because it, it it was a not-for-profit or was that just not an issue at all? And maybe people were more driven because they were there uh, because uh, more of a sense of purpose than uh, than of uh, economic value. Well, it, it's all of the above. So um, what we, what the, the financial people at Battelle would tell you is that we are, you know, we, Battelle is a not-for-loss. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, if, okay. if Battelle doesn't make a profit, they can't distribute those profits to the community. Yeah. And so there is incentive to, not financial incentive, but there is you know, incentive to make a profit so you can give back to the communities that, that they serve. Um, and, and that was the motivation for the people who worked there. Not only was it amazing, super deep technical work and challenging technical work, it was also that the benefits of that work to humanity and the people who, you know, to the world at large and that the um, the outputs that people worked on, not only from a technology standpoint, help people, but the profits that Patel made would go out to the communities. You know, there's several people who are live in Columbus who will hear this. You know, there's a number of Patel, you know, Patel Park and Patel Hall. You know, there's a lot of places where Patel donates their uh, their their dollars and their time, you know, volunteer time. Uh, in the communities and that, yeah, that was a motivation for people um, over and above just the amazing technologies that people get to work on. Wow. How interesting. That's fascinating. Um, 
you've traveled for work, apparently, uh, doing speak, speaking oh, engagements. Yes. yes. Okay. A resounding yes. <laughs> a lot. All over the world. Uh, a couple places I read about were the, the Arctic Circle of Finland and the, the shores of Lake Victoria in Uganda. I mean, just reading those names that conjures up images of grandeur. Well, how has traveling the world and, and experiencing some of these different like societies and cultures affected the way that you think about the world and and your role within it as a designer? So yeah, I've I have traveled um, throughout. Had the opportunity to travel a lot uh, in my career. Even before I had a job, I went to I spent some time in studying in Finland uh, and working at a small design consultancy in Germany. Um, and the first thing it taught me, I think, is anybody who travels a lot knows that the world is small and people are a lot alike all over the world. Um, so that was sort of uh, for the for somebody who's never traveled outside the United States as a as a kid. It was really important for me to learn that lesson um, that we are all similar in a lot of ways. Uh, I just happen to be living in different parts of the world. But I remember specifically a moment when I was in Finland with one of my roommates that, um, you know, somebody made a joke and that we laughed at the joke and it was this and what what became so acutely aware to me is that humor in that scenario humor was universal you know we come from different cultures and different backgrounds and different ways of thinking but we all thought the same thing was funny so that was an eye opener for me at how how uh, common in some cases we all are uh, you know fast forward from those experiences and after living there and traveling around fast forward to my career um, my ability to travel overseas and have overseas clients and do it with confidence because I've been there and I understand, you know, the, just the simple things of how to get around, but also the more nuanced things of how to potentially interact with different cultures and those types of things. I mean, it's, it was incredibly important to me as a person, but also uh, in a career. Um, and, you know, from a designer, sort of all stemming back to there's, um, there's a common theme uh, in, in things that people want and need. Uh, and there are nuances to different cultures, but for the most part, you know, you can find probably a trace of similarities across many things. Um, you know, the, I had an opportunity to do some work with the Gates Foundation in my past, and that's what took me to Uganda. Um, to me, that was just, that was mind blowing because, um, the, the, not only the opportunity and the, the ability to affect so many lives that the project would, would allow, uh, but just getting to know different cultures and, and, the different amounts of need that sub-Saharan Africa has, you know, uh, when it comes to healthcare and, you know, prevention of disease. Um, to me, it was a complete shift in how I thought about my role and my ability to give back to the world as a designer and a developer. You know, it, it's what part of the reason why I shifted all into medical and away from, you know, consumer because medical to me has a fundamental good about it. You know, you're, you're doing the work because you want people to help people get healthier or better. Um, so that's really, that was part of my all in when it comes to medical, uh, focusing on medical work. You, you had mentioned earlier, um, or not during this podcast, but you have mentioned uh, philanthropic design. Does, does that philanthropic design tie into uh, some of the experiences like you had at Uganda, but just realizing that um, not everyone has the, the same uh, very high level of healthcare that, that we have here in the United States and, and many other places in the world. But uh, uh, how does that philanthropic design tie into some of these experiences? It made me think about, um, you know, some, some entities give their money uh, and some entities give their 
skills. And, and it really made me start thinking about the notion of skills volunteerism and that, you know, if I were to write somebody a check for a hundred dollars, it would go so far, but I could give some, I could potentially give a lot more value if I could help somebody who's developing a product for sub-Saharan Africa or, you know, even in the U S uh, if I could donate my time and my knowledge to me, that was much more valuable than just writing checks or donating money. And so that's when I kind of, that's the sort of philanthropic design of the notion of skills volunteerism where, um, you know, you're really donating your unique capabilities and your unique perspective to people who can't necessarily afford it or know they need it. Um, you know, some companies that we worked with uh, in the past, you know, they couldn't afford to use uh, a large R&D company, but they still needed our help nonetheless. And so that's where, it's where you start to think about Hey, maybe maybe we should start to donate our 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 skills and our capabilities more than just our dollars. It, it sounds like you've had the opportunity to do that. Was that um, at at Patel, or has this been at, at at PD as well, or where have you been able to exercise that philanthropic design? So it was it was while I was at Patel, and it was inspired by Patel. But at the time, it was not endorsed by Battelle, and that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but so so it was inspired by the the, the notion to do to do good things, um, and so the work that we uh, that we were doing um, was engineering uh, the specific project that we worked on was a, a grain thresher that helped uh, people get higher yields out of small farms in, in Mali was the specific case that we were working on. And that just was from a, you know, that was a random meeting chance meeting I had with somebody who was a volunteer group who came out of general mills when I was at some trade show in Minneapolis. It was one of those ridiculous moments in life where all these things come together and everything just sort of happens. Um, so, so we created a little small, I mean, it was a nonprofit. It was called one lab. And we, you know, we, the goal was for us to donate our skills and, and capabilities to help these major problems across the world. Um, and so myself and a couple other guys from Battelle got together and we went to a local um, fab lab and, you know, hammered out uh, a, a portable uh, grain thresher that one of my colleagues packed in a suitcase and took with him to Mali and twice uh, and did some testing. And it, it inspired a couple of other nonprofit little spin outs to do their own thing. And it was really fun for me to see that happen. Um, and, and that's where I kind of got my first taste of the power of being able to donate your skills to these kinds of problems. Um, so yeah, that, that's really where I sort of got the eyes on. That's fantastic. Uh, thinking about putting a prototype in a suitcase and taking it, you know, halfway across the world, that's not an opportunity that most of us get to have. Um, how, how rewarding. Yes. <laughs> All right. So next question. Reed, you work now at Priority Designs, PD, and uh, to be honest, I have a little bit of a crush on, on Priority <laughs> Designs. <laughs> I mean, I, I looked at the website, and uh, PD, you, you guys are legit. I mean, this, what I see on the website anyway, this is what I think of when, like, when I was a college student and I, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to work for a product development company. I'm going to design new products. What I see on the PD website, that's what I thought of. I mean, you guys are like vertically integrated. You got design and engineering and soft goods and research and software. It, it, it looks like you do it all. And I kind of have a crush on PD. Um, 
So not, fair. <laughs> it, it is fair. Thank you. <laughs> not, not many product development firms get to kind of the, the, the scale and the level of capability that PD has. Maybe can you share a little bit about why do you think that, that Priority has enjoyed the success that it has? Like, what are you guys doing so well? So um, let me first start by saying I, I shared and share your crush, and here's why. <laughs> so I, when I was in college, um, PD was a, actually I was I was Priority's first intern. They had back when they were a small you know it was a company of four people in a in a garage, um, and I stayed there for a bit, and then I left and had a career. You know, went to Battelle and had a career there, and 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 always admired. Um, the way PD operated and the way they just their um, personality and their presence and just the things that they did, they did cool design and, you know, they seemed like they had a good time. So five years ago when I left Patel to go to PD, you know, to go back to PD to, to help them, you know, fil- focus on and build up their med device capabilities. Um, you know, from the outside, it looks one way. And then when you get inside, it's like, it's exactly as you would have expected it to be. It is, it is probably the most authentic place I have ever worked. Wow. Um, one of the things that to me really allows us, and again, coming from a large organization where there was a lot of hierarchy and a lot of structure, and there was a lot of, you know, layers you had to go through PD. And I'm now convinced there after being for there for five years, PD is a flat org or a flat structure. We have, four principles um and then there's everybody else and everybody is equal and to build on that it's now last two years it is an esop so it is an employee owned flat structure and what that does is it gives everybody the autonomy to make the right decisions for the client and make the best decisions for the client in mind Um, it helps us be nimble and quick in how we react it helps us think differently about um a way we want to approach something. It gives everybody from a junior designer all the way up to a senior, per, you know, senior engineer, everybody has equal say at the table. So you have, and I've heard this a number of times from new staff that come in and they're like junior designers and they are on the first phone call with the client. And when we ask them a question, they're chiming in and they never would have been able to do that at, at another company because, you know, you have to go to the, the account manager or the senior designer or the design director. And, and it just doesn't allow for this open and organic communication. The other thing that we that we do so well that I've seen over the you know in my time there, because of that flat structure and because of that motivation to just do do cool work and have a place for people to go that they enjoy, we've been able to grow into new places organically. Um, you know, there is no, you know, you're going to have 30% year over year growth and we're going to get into this space and we're going to make this much money in the space. It doesn't. We don't work like that. You know, we grow organically into. You know, it started as a design firm with designers and then it grew into engineering because our clients needed engineering. And then we started doing some soft goods work for sporting goods and then soft goods work turned into wearable medical devices and medical devices, you know, expanded as you could imagine. And then when I, you know, when I joined coming from Battelle and working in a place that had these multidisciplinary teams, um, but still had the, you know, the bureaucracy of a large behemoth organization. And I came to priority and it was like somebody gave me the keys to a, to a race car. I mean, all of this capability, all of this interest, all of this um, knowledge and and, uh, capabilities and the building, the machines we have, 
and then we could move. Let, let me ask you a little bit about the flat, uh, the, the flat hierarchy or structure at, at Priority because I love that, that setup. That's, like, that's my preferred way to work. And I've talked to other design firms that they started out, you know, they're kind of small, maybe 5, 10, 15 people, and they did the, the flat structure and that worked great. But as they grew, as they got, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, it was really hard to maintain that flat structure. What, and I, I think priority, you guys are what, 50, 60 people, something like that? Yeah, we're 65, pushing uh, maybe almost 70. Okay. Okay. So how have you been able to maintain that, that, you know, flat structure with so many people? So it's interesting you know, we've just gone through, um, when we became an ESOP, you know, and the, and the company, you know, we all became employee owners. Uh, one of the things that was, you know, one of the, the reasons for that was the, the founders of the company, Paul and Moe Scalata, you know, they're ready to, they're ready to move on. So in the next five years, they're probably going to, you know, retire. And they, they wanted to, um, they wanted to sell the company, but they didn't want to, you know, at the time, a lot of design firms were being snapped up by large companies like, you know, I think Lunar was purchased by McKinsey. And, you know, you had these huge companies who, who knew design was a relevant thing and they, uh, they knew there was value and they wanted to buy versus build. So they went out and they snapped up these companies. I mean, there was a, there was a period of time when there was like in the news, every couple of weeks, there was a large design firm that was, was being purchased. You know, Paul and Lois recognized that that probably wasn't because of our culture that wasn't going to be a good fit. They didn't think, nor did they hear any feedback from those companies who had been purchased that it was good to their culture to be snapped up by a large company because then you you inevitably became, you know, people started watching you a little more closely and there were some rules you put in and, and, and the other option was to shut it down and that didn't make any sense. So as part of the ESOP where you sell, you know, you basically sell the company to the employees. Um, part of what's happening is that we're putting in a structures, uh, an unstructured structure no, that sounds stupid, but it's 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 loosely based on the notion of a holacracy, where we have now, and we've just we just did this at the beginning of the year, and the pandemic, you know, hasn't messed with this at all. <laughs> Whatever, it's kind of recapping with it, but um, <laughs> uh, we have we have in essence what are circles, and it's not circles in the Zappos way, you know, it's not that defined, but it's like we have. Um, uh, capability areas. So we have a UX team and a research team and an engineering team and a soft goods team. And within that group are people who spend 60, 70% of their time in that space. A lot of people cross over. We have designers who are in UX. We have HF who do, who do um, uh, UX work and so on and so forth. But in these circles, you know, each circle has what we call category leads or category points. And those are two to three people in the circle who have been, um, chosen by their peers to represent their capability to the larger group. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a managerial position. You don't have any managerial responsibilities. Like you don't get to judge somebody whether they're doing this or doing that. You are in essence facilitating that making sure that that things are going as, as they should and that the voice of those team members are being heard. Um, and th that's a rotating that's a rotating role. So, so there isn't anybody who's going to be in that role for more than a year at a time. Oh, okay. It, it, okay. Right. And so what that does is it, it gets rid of anybody who might be, um, you know, not everybody is a good manager and everybody's a good communicator and that's fine. You got to play to people's strengths. Some people might not be comfortable in that role because the, in, in some cases you have to have challenging conversations with staff and with clients. Um, and sometimes, you know, you're, you're responsible for making the ultimate decision on something and some people don't like that. You know, that accountability. Yeah. Um, so, 
but what we're, you know, what we're hoping is that it will give people a chance to be in this role. It'll give people a chance to learn how to communicate with them, you know, with others and their team. And it sort of builds to this notion that we all are part of the same entity and we all have equal uh, input. Um, you know, and I mean, there's a managerial team, there's a serious set of principles, you know, uh, for four of us who, who oversee kind of the day-to-day operations, you know, of the company, but we don't really have any kind of heavy hand in it. We just sort of, you know, I'm, yes, I'm a principal, but I also do a lot of research and project management. So it's not like I'm sitting there in my office, you know, running numbers on a spreadsheet. Um, so everybody's actively involved in all of the, all of the way the business runs. So um, there, there's still, you know, traditional project managers. Um, it, it's not like, you know, teams are, are managing themselves. There is a project manager for a project. Uh, is, is that accurate? In some cases, yeah, and I, not, not in all cases. So, you know, we, we do programs that range anywhere from $5,000 to, you know, a couple million dollars. Um, and we can be profitable with a $5,000 project because of our structure, because we don't have a lot of overhead. And we don't have, you know, we, we have people who can manage projects. We don't have PMPs. You know, we don't have professional project managers, but we don't necessarily need them because our programs and our clients don't require them. Um, so some programs are self-managed. If you're a senior person on a small program, you can manage yourself. You don't need somebody, you know, pushing you to do something. You know, a couple of the larger programs we've had in, uh, you know, we've just brought in the last couple of months, honestly, um, they require by necessity a full-time project manager. You're one of the programs I'm on for the next 12 months and I'm the full-time PM, but it's because there's like, you know, it's a full, it's a full scale product development, medical device development activity. That's 12 months long, you know, and there's a lot of things going on and you just, you know, I'm there to, provide cover fire, you know, to, to allow the teams to do what they do without having to deal with the minutia of making sure we're on budget and making sure, you know, we've got scheduled with the other PM and we were trying to find times for meetings. It's just mechanics of a large program. So it depends on the program. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, I think for most, probably 75% of the projects you have a project manager, but it's not, it's not a formal, it's not a formal role. It's like a senior designer who's overseeing the program writing the numbers and doing the books and, you know, in building, but also providing inputs and guidance to uh, some of the junior members who might be on the team and, you know, working on the program themselves. You know, we don't have, we don't have the structure and we want to keep our overhead low. So we don't have a bunch of PMs who all they do is, is project manage. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, in the cases where there's more of this like senior design lead, is that individual also the one who's kind of assigning tasks to the team and making sure that, you know, this task got done. Okay. What's next? Let's move on to this part. Yeah. So, so right now, for example, we have on the, on uh, one of our programs, we have a, a human factors tech lead, a mechanical engineering tech lead and a, a design tech lead. And pretty soon we're going to, we're going to add the UX UI tech lead. And those people are, you, know, you look at the racy chart, those people are accountable for the quality of the deliverables that are on that program. Okay. Um, and they are working with their, you know, the team, it's not their team. They're not, you know, they don't have anybody who reports to them, but they're working with their, the design team that they have, that they and we all have assembled and they're making sure that everybody, you know, they get inputs and saying, what do we, you know, what if we did this? And they're, you know, they're assigning in some cases, assigning tasks, but it's not a, it's playing to people's strengths it's not you're going to do this and you're going to do that. It's basically, okay, we've, we have, we have these three prototypes to build, you know, a mechanical one here, and this is more of a user interface who wants to work on what things and helps people play to their strengths. So it's a lot more facilitation than it is direction. Um, again, I think that goes to our ability to be a flat structure and to be a very efficient flat structure. 
Do you think that works for most any, uh, you know, engineer, designer, team member, or have, has a PD had to um, kind of find the right people that, that uh, are able to work in an environment like that? It's absolutely had to find the right people. Um, I can't tell you the number of people we've interviewed who have left saying, I don't know how you guys get anything done. <laughs> you know, I don't know. And, and even honestly, I myself, when I started, uh, you know, it was like, this is a, this is like a free range. This is a bunch of free range designers. How does anything get accomplished? It's the wild but, west out there. Right. So <laughs> it's wild west. What are you guys doing? Um, but you just have to, you know, you have to be comfortable in that. And it's not like we're just a bunch of people bumping into walls. You know, we, we get stuff done and we get it done well. And, and after a while, you just, you, you understand the heartbeat and the pulse of the company. Um, some people absolutely thrive in it. Um, they come in and they're like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. I find that happens when people who have been somewhere else first and they come in and they recognize, wow, this is, this place allows you to do amazing things and you get to do them the way you want to do them with support from this incredible network of people um, and, and people who are more junior, they don't know any different. So they're like, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this place is great. What I find, and this is, you know, just about every time somebody who comes in, who places value on um, climbing a ladder or a title or um, reaching a certain dollar value, you know, dollar amount that they don't, if they even make it in, they don't last long because oh, it's just that's a, a big PD, point. Yeah. It's a huge point. And, and PD is not a place that you go to become director of anything. You know, PD is a place you go to do really cool stuff with great people in a, you know, for a company that you believe in. Um, and, you know, it, I sound like a cheerleader. It's kind of, you know, we all kind of are, but I, coming from an environment that was different than that, that was hierarchical and, you know, there were management levels and I was on the track and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, you see you kind of get further and further away from the work and you start to, you know, having ladders to climb and things to do tends, you know, things like that to do tends to drive bad behavior in some people where motivations could be less about authenticity in the work and more in, I need to achieve a certain goal. Um, so that in itself, you know, that whole notion of achievement of a structure or label or title, that's gone. And that really is, acts as a filter in some cases to people who, who want that, who seek that, don't, don't, uh, really don't ever, don't think it's a good fit. And they're probably right. It's not. I love that. This is a place that you come to do cool design. If you're looking for climbing the ladder, if your goal is to be director or something, this is not, this isn't the place for you. I, I love that, uh, that attitude that resonates with me so much. Um, tell me how, how, how do you keep people uh, motivated or maybe that's not the, the right way to ask it. What is there for, for someone at PD to look forward to? Like what's, what's the next step? How do they grow into a, a new role or uh, how, how do people progress there? Or is that not even uh, the right you know, paradigm in which to think about PD's culture? That's such a great question because it, we, we get that a lot. Um, people at PD are obviously motivated to do really good things and you know, people want to achieve things and they, you know, some, a lot of people find value and, and worth through achievement. Um, and so let me give you a specific example of a guy who I work with, who, uh, he's an industrial designer, um, very talented industrial designer. Um, and, and he's also a musician. Um, when they were, he was working on a, on a medical device program and, uh, the notion of alarms came up and I helped him understand that there's a pretty specific guidance on what 
alarms needed to sound like. Um, and he was like, okay, cool, but I don't like these sounds. <laughs> you know, I, as a musician, <laughs> these sounds don't, they don't do what I think they're supposed to do. And obviously oh, we're talking okay. about not, non-critical alarms. Now we're not going to yeah. change anything like that. But you start to get into the notion of sound design. And so this guy, Eddie Gandelman is his name, he just started on his own time to mess around with sound design. And, you know, he's, he, it, it is inspired by a passion he has outside of work, which is music. And we let him bring that into work and, and see if there's a connection to be made with that in the work that he does. And because of our notion of organic growth, we let him run with it. Or he let himself run with it. I guess that's a better way to say it. We didn't let him do anything yet. He just did it. <clears throat> um, and because he was motivated and passionate about it, he came up with a really amazing, compelling um, examples of how this worked. I submitted it to, I think it was MDDI, and they loved it. And they published it. And then people started to call and talk about, well, what is this that you're doing? And then we started to be able to talk to people about our possibility to do sound design or, you know, somebody in, you know, one of the human factors, people call it ear cons or way, ways to help people understand meaning through the sound versus the icon. And because we are able to sort of follow these passions, we have had a number of really amazing uh projects that deal with sound design and continue to deal with sound design for the automotive industry, for the medical device industry, um, where people are coming to us because they are thinking about tones, non-critical tones and alarms, but sounds, integrating sounds into a system when you need, when, when somebody doesn't, isn't able to actually look at the product they're using, uh, they have to look somewhere else, augmented reality potentially, or some other looking through a visor or some kind of camera. And so they can't see the screen or can't see the system. They own, the only information they have is audible. And so how do you make tones and sounds mean something to them in a way that hasn't been done before? Mm. And, and Eddie just, I mean, Eddie grew this thing from a guy in a room who was having some fun to a legit business line. And it's still, it's still going. I mean, we have a sound lab now and we are doing sound design for companies and then we're testing, doing human factors testing on the sounds that we're designing. So it's, and that, that's, you know, there's a number of stories. We soft is the same way, digital knitting, you know, that's the beauty of not having this sort of corporate structure where you have to ask for permission. You just are like, Hey, I think this would be cool. And we, you are allowed to go follow that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of Google's, you know, what they're the famed 20% time when you got 20% of your time yeah, doing yeah. something. And, um, you know, it's not that, it's not that formal. Uh, some people love to come in and they go to their desk and they sit and they crank out amazing work and they leave at five o'clock and that's, that's fine. And some people come in and they just stay there and work and work and work because they love it. And everybody is content and we don't, you know, we don't have any specific way you have to be or have to act to be valued at PD. It's about your, it's about how you contribute to the, to the company. That's fantastic. I, I just, I love everything that you're saying, Reed. This is, this is so great. Um, it, it almost sounds like it's a company of uh, entrepreneurs might not be quite the right word, but me personally, I love creating something new and, mm -hmm. and I, I get bored when I have to do the same thing over and over. In fact, oftentimes, uh, maybe not always to, to my benefit or to my team's benefit, but <laughs> there's something that I really should be working on, but I, I've been working on it for a while and I, it, it becomes stale and, and I just, I want to start something new. You know, I want to, I want to mm -hmm. uh, start a new process or a new endeavor, a new effort, a new something. And, and it, uh, to me, that's what entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship is. And, and, and I love that. And it, it sounds like at PD, there's, there's this internal, um, if not focus, at least support 
or, or culture that fosters people being their, their own entrepreneurs almost, you know, w- within yeah. the, 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 the society of, of PD. Does, I mean, does that explain it a little bit or, or am I just way off here? No, you're right on. It's, I, I've heard people describe it, describe it as intrapreneur. Yeah, where you yeah. are, you know, you're inside an organization and you're, but you're, you're following kind of your own, your own thought and your own idea. Um, you know, people, people who leave PD, you know, actually a lot of them leave to start their own, to start their own companies. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of side hustles going on, you know, people mm. go home at night and they, they make art or they print this thing or, um, and, and we've had, you know, one of our, one of the designers we had a couple years ago, right when I started, he would make maps, you know, he was a graphic designer, industrial designer, very talented. And he would make maps at, at night, uh, come up with cool designs for maps. And it turned out to be, you know, it was a hobby and then it kind of grew a little bit more. And now, he, you know, he left and started this company called Conquest Maps. And it's, it's this nationally recognized map company where you, you know, you buy the map and you put pins where you've been and where you want to go. I mean, he's just, he's killing it. And, and it, he, he started at PD and he did it in his own time. And we let him, you know, he, I, I keep saying we let him follow. It's like, we didn't let him do anything. He just, he just did it. Yeah. Um, and you know, he got, he, this particular you know designer got to the point where he's like, I think I can make a business out of this. And we, you know, started to see him go, but it was really cool to see him kind of launch this. And that it's interesting that, that a number of people who have moved on from priority have done so to start a company that they, I'll say incubated for lack of a better term while they were at PD. Um, so yeah, and and then there are, there are people who just like Eddie, he he is able to connect his passion of music with his job, which is incredibly rare in today's world. Yeah, um, yeah. and and we find you know we want to make sure that people have that opportunity to do that. Um, you know, a, a recent example we had of you know, obviously with all the COVID stuff going around, you know, we have a digital digital knitting machine in our office, and uh, two of the you know one of the mechanical engineering designers and the digital knit uh, expert got together and the team cranked out some mask designs and we've, we've knitted, we've knit 10,000 masks and distributed 10,000 masks to the community because it was a, you know, Hannes's passion was philanthropy. And we were able to make that connection between this, you know, talking about skills volunteering. We have this machine that not a lot of companies like us have a digitally knit, digital knitting machine. And we were able to make these masks and distribute them to the, to the communities around, around PD because it was a passion of Hannes and Wolfgang to do this. And we were able to, as a company, allow them and let them and give them the environment to do that. That's phenomenal. I love it. All right. Well, we're, I feel like I could just ask you question after question for days on end without break. <laughs> this, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks. It's been fun. I love I, it. I have just two more questions for you. Um, hopefully not, not, not too long, but... Uh, this is one that I ask everyone, and I think it's super useful for other engineering teams out there. So I, I ask it to everyone. What What are a couple of your favorite vendors? You know, who, who are the suppliers that that you really have found to be super valuable over the years? From my perspective, it's been um, well because my background and, and recently, you know, the team does a lot of research. For me, the vendors we use specifically as the research group are the are the uh, other recruiters. Um, I mean, the recruiters are incredibly important to find the right people for the right job, for the right test. You know, we do a lot of, because we do a lot of medical finding the right nurses and doctors um, has been uh, invaluable to us. Uh, I'm sure that's probably not the kind of vendor you're, you're asking for, but for, you know, from my perspective, that was the first thing. Well, yeah, maybe. And if it's, this is like proprietary stuff, then that's, that's 
fine and totally understandable. But uh, I like to hear some names, you know, like what, what's a name that we can give the engineering community that they can go out and find on the internet and say, oh, cool, yeah, we could use these guys. Anything oh, like sure. that that you can share? Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, Schlesinger Research, I think that's how you say it, Schlesinger Research, l and &E Research, um, uh, we've used M3, Fieldwork. I mean, these are all great recruiters that we have used. And again, I'm just talking specifically from the research standpoint, but tying this back into the conversation, we have to find the right people who are going to be using these devices in the field. And these recruiting companies help us find those people, um, either in Columbus or nationally, globally, help us find the right people, help us orchestrate. You know, it's not an easy task to get nurses in Tokyo to come to a recruiting, you know, a research facility in their spare time and run through a series of evaluative studies. But so we rely really heavily on these recruiting partners. Um, you know, and it's, it might be a little bit out of scope or not out of scope, but out of, out of frame for what a, a, an engineering team might be thinking, but to recognize that, yeah, these are going to be used by specific people and you, the engineer are very likely not the end user. And so you should really consider trying to find people who are your end user. If you don't have the, you know, if you don't have the luxury of internal experts or clinical staff or a pool of people around that aren't part of your company that are, will give you clinical feedback, then you're going to need to go out and find actual users. And from my perspective, in the work that I do and my, and, you know, the team I work with does recruiters as our, you know, it's a critical vendor for us uh, because we have to find the right people. Awesome. I love it. Okay. Last question. What are a few of the biggest challenges that, that you encounter at work? <laughs> Lately, it's been actually being in work at work. <laughs> so, <laughs> because of so, the whole isolation. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Quarantine. Yeah. We have, um, I mean, actually, you know, we, we, I haven't, I've been back in the office, I think once since, since March 11th. Um, we very quickly, I think quicker than we thought we could became virtual. Um, and with, by using things like whiteboard and teams and in all the virtual tools we have, we are fully operational. Um, the people who need to be in the building to run the machines are running the machines. They're there. And people who don't need to be there are not there because we don't want to jeopardize their health, ultimately the health of the company. So, um, it's been difficult. It's been a little bit of an adjustment, but I think, you know, it's been actually kind of cool to see how we are turning into a virtual company um, that hopefully will change soon and we'll be able to get back as, as a team. And, but you know, it's, it's sort of forever changed that we're going to be able to work differently. And that's great. Um, a lot of our, a lot of our clients are in the same boat. And so we're not unique in this space. So we're all sharing the same things, going through the same things at the same time. I think another thing just from a business perspective is, you know, the ever changing economy and what's, you know, what's happening. And as the market goes down, are clients going to, are they going to uh, jettison their internal R and D teams and rely mm. more on consultants? Or are they going to lock down and say, we want to keep our own people. Let's, you know, we're going to not use any more consultants. Um, understanding that and understanding being able to navigate that landscape is important and, and a challenge that we see. Um, and, you know, the other, one that we just talked about the other day is the whole notion of now, now with this whole post COVID world or not post COVID, but post everybody <laughs> locks down for COVID. <laughs> how do we, how do we engage with our clients? How do we, um, how do we meet new clients? You know, trade shows and those things are pretty much dead for the next couple of years. So what are we going to do in a, from a virtual standpoint to be able to introduce ourselves and get people to know who we are 
and why we do things and how we can help them. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things that you sort of chew on as you're, as you're kind of going through your day. Um, the other thing, you know, another uh, thing that we, that we uh, think about uh, at PD is, is, you know, like we talked about a little earlier, how do you, how do you find talent, keep them, keep them happy, allow them to do great things. And now you, you know, you overlay the notion of we're not all in the same building at the same time. You know, there is a cultural aspect of that that's going to be diminished a little bit. I'm not going to say it's going to be going, going away, but, um, you know, I, I do have a little bit of worry about people, the social people who need that energy of others in the time when you can't, is that going to help, you know, is that yeah. going to have impacts on them? So, um, you know, but again, the, the beauty that I am seeing or have seen over the past five years of PD is that we are rather organic in how we operate. So we can kind of roll with the punches as we go. Um, we also maintain consumer industrial and medical business lines or business units, if you will. You know, we focus on those three areas. So when one's up and the other's down, we're okay. When one maybe recedes a little bit, you know, we can push that energy into another one. Um, you know, we, in the past, we, for example, have a lot of experience in, in consumer product design of hand tools. Well, you know, if that, if that diminishes, then we can probably move into, and we'll probably move into more uh, industrial and medical design of hand tools because people in those spaces need hand tools and we have expertise in design development of hand tools. So it's just kind of a matter of, of staying up on the current environment where we think things are going and being able to put energy to see, yeah, does this make sense to put some people here? And, you know, like Eddie, it makes sense to, you know, to follow Eddie's path when it comes to sound design. And yeah, it does. Um, and some things work and some things don't. Yeah. Well, I love it. Some, some companies, I think probably it was like you said, right. You have to have the right people. Some companies are not going to be able to work in such a kind of uh, free flowing organic matter, but I, I love that. I mean, that to me, that that's the kind of place where uh, that's my happy place, right? To quote happy Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, Reed, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, so probably the, the easiest way you can send an email to me directly at priority. So, uh, my email address is rharpum, uh, at priorityzigns.com and, or you can just go to LinkedIn, find me on LinkedIn, send me a message. Oh, I'm, I'm sitting on my computer eight hours a day, so I'm sure I will see it. <laughs> It'll pop up on my screen. Uh, but yeah, anybody has any questions or wants to learn more, I'm happy to, happy to talk in more detail. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I, I've, I've done about, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 of these podcasts so far. And, and there have been a couple where I, I felt like there was just this really good flow of energy back and forth. And, and for me personally, you might feel completely differently, but th this has been one of them for sure. I've, I've really, really enjoyed hearing about your experiences and about how PD works and operates. And just the, the, the whole thing was just a, a complete pleasure for me. So thank you so much, Reed. Thank you. I appreciate it. I agree. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to have sort of this common, common theme and have an open discussion about it. So yeah, technical issues aside on my, on my end, <laughs> I appreciate your patience. And, yeah. I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of being an engineer. Tune in next time. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>